0: Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to be our Savior. Thank you for the many blessings you provided us and for, for meeting our every need. We thank you that you are good and there's no one good but God and that Jesus has come, who's offered us forgiveness and salvation and new life through faith in Him. And we ask, Lord, that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit, that we would be receptive to the things of your word, that we would receive it, that we would rejoice in it, that we'd be grateful and just in awe of all that you've accomplished through Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, for those who are struggling, who are suffering. Think of the the outbreak of disease and the fires and just the many... Uh, tough things that are happening, these, these fiery trials that people are going through all across the world. And we pray that through these things, Jesus Christ would be glorified, that people would turn to him out of desperation, in great need, that there would be humility, Lord. There would be a, just a, a seeking of your face. And I pray that we would be those who seek your face, Lord. We would be those who draw near to you, so you draw near to us, in Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in Luke chapter three, starting in verse nineteen, presenting proper identification. That's very important in the real world, online. Uh, whenever you want to make an inquiry about uh, your bank statements, or you want you're talking to a power company or an insurance company, internet provider, they want to ask you a few questions, security questions, and and now they have that, um, you know, multi-factor authentication that I'm just like, what? I don't want to get an SMS. I don't want to get an email to confirm it's me. Like, isn't that annoying? Or is it just me? I I mean, I already have this huge list of passwords and usernames, and it just seems a bit over the top. It's out of hand. But, uh, you know, you're trying to rego your car, log into... New South Wales service or your eBay for a purchase or Facebook to, to access your contacts. You have to put in identification when you check in at the airport. I mean, these are good things, right, that you would have a passport with you, that you'd show who you are. When you get pulled over at an RBT to present your driver's license, that's valid. When we immigrated to Australia, my family and I, we needed FBI background checks and fingerprints and uh, a, an Australian police report and birth certificates and marriage certificates and I mean, the certificate, certification was incredible. And this is good because it's keeping the imposters out and it's letting the permitted people in. Now, before holograms, before the invention of plastic or microchips, God identified who the Messiah would be with multi-factor authentication. He used the word. He used prophets. He, he proclaimed it with angels that he would be born the son of David. That he would be born by a virgin in the city of Bethlehem. That he would be called out of Egypt. That he would be raised in Nazareth. That he would be the one anointed with the Holy Spirit. Now identification today, it involves a picture a lot of times. And it can't be an old picture like from your last passport. They want a new one. They want something that's looking how you look today. And I know with kids, you have to get a new passport every five years because they're changing. God's provided us that picture of the Messiah, who the promised Messiah would be, he revealed that in intimate detail, and that he sent John the Baptist who would prepare the way for all to see the salvation of God. John, he came in the, the spirit and power of Elijah the prophet. He prepared the way, preaching this baptism of repentance for the pardon of sins, People are going into the wilderness to hear John speak, and some of them are wondering, man, with this guy's power and his authority, is he the Messiah? Is he the Christ? And he strongly denied it. He put all those questions to rest, and he says, I'm not him. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe. I'm not, I'm not worthy to even serve him and wash his feet, but the one who's coming, I'm baptizing with water, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And it was during that impactful ministry of John that Jesus was identified and revealed through his baptism, as we'll read today. So John, excuse me, Luke 3, <clears throat> starting in verse 19. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut up John in prison. John was a man filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, He pulled no punches with the need for people to change from their sinful ways, to walk uprightly under the law. And John, he didn't just address the needs of the common people or tax collectors or soldiers as he does in the previous passage, that they should repent from their sin and that their life should have a corresponding change because they've repented. He also spoke concerning the king, King Herod, who was the Tetrarch in Galilee. This was Herod Antipas, who is uh, known... Um, to observe Jewish feasts. He he fancied himself as a Jew. This kind of brought him into more favor with them. But he was rebuked for unlawfully divorcing his wife and, his, and Herodias divorced her husband so they could be married. And then it said, this was only one of the many evils that he did and above all, putting John in prison. So John's saying the right thing. He's upholding the righteousness of the law but John gets arrested and put in prison and, and he hated John for publicly rebuking him, but he also acknowledged that John was a holy man who was well respected among the people. So it wasn't expedient for him to take revenge and to kill John, but to arrest him and to silence him. It it served the purpose at the time. Now the imprisonment of John—it's not chronological because Jesus has still yet to be baptized, as we'll see, verse 21. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. The water baptism of Jesus, it's recorded in all the Gospels. It's a significant way that God identified Jesus as the Messiah. It's one one thing for Jesus to confound the religious leaders at 12 years of age for days in the temple, but it's far greater to have that public dual authentication of both the Father speaking and the Holy Spirit appearing as a dove and resting upon him. You have that voice booming from heaven. You see the dove coming down upon him, and this is not something that, I mean, it happens to like what, Snow White and... and, uh, you know doesn't happen to me I don't have doves alighting upon me at any time it was odd it was definitely different in the Disney classic Cinderella she was known she was identified by one thing he had a glass slipper and it only fit one person and it fit her if I go into a car park I have a white car and I forget exactly where I park I push a button and I'm like, I hear a noise, I see a flash of lights. That's the car that I have access to because it's mine. So I have that authentication where I can tell, okay, that's my car. And everyone else is like, oh, well, you have the key. Then I'm not even questioning the fact that it's yours. The voice of God speaking from heaven, that divinely revealed that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah. And he spoke to people who had heard the words of David in Psalm 2-7, where he said, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So he's saying words that people were familiar with, people who knew the law in the Psalms. To be begotten is a very specific term. It's to be made after the same kind, like a dog begets a dog and a human begets a human. The begotten son of God means he's begotten of God, that he is God made flesh. And the people were also familiar with the words of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 42.1. Behold, my servant whom whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in the sight of all the people. He's the king of kings, but also the servant of all, the savior of all, including Gentiles. One unique aspect of the Luke account of the baptism of Christ is that it mentions him praying. None of the others do. It says, while he prayed, the heaven was opened. The praying of Jesus is connected with the heavens being opened, having access into the presence of the Father. And we have access through Christ, access to the Father through him. And we see the triune nature of God here, don't we? We hear the voice of the Father speaking. We see Jesus praying and the Holy Spirit descending. Jesus did something so marvelous, coming into a world to save sinners, to make a way for us to be forgiven, to have access to God, to have a relationship with God that was impossible because of sin. So Jesus, he brings salvation from the Father through the Holy Spirit in his power. Now the purpose of John's baptism, we talked about this briefly last week, but the purpose of John's baptism was different than uh, the baptism as we see following Christ coming. If you turn in your Bibles to Acts 19, starting in verse 1, this is a good example of this. So this happened probably a couple decades, this very roughly after Jesus went to heaven. He ascended to the Father after his crucifixion and resurrection, when Paul is going through to the various churches and ministering. So Acts 19 Verse 1 And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, then Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. If the baptism of John was identical to the baptism of Jesus Christ, there would have been no need to be baptized again. But they saw that they had been baptized to repent under John, but we're to be baptizing, the Scripture says, in the name of the Father, of the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. The baptism, uh, so John's baptism points to Jesus, and it's like the, the baptism that Jesus went points to the Holy Spirit. It shows who Jesus is, right? That was, John baptized people so people would believe on Christ, but Christ has come. And so we, believing in Christ, were baptized in water and in identifying with him that he died on the cross and he rose from the dead, and that we are now raised to new life with Him. Repentance is part of it, but that's not the primary thing. Isn't it crazy that there's no power in water baptism, there's no power in laying on of hands by themselves, but in obedience and submission to God, through prayer and faith, the Holy Spirit came upon these believers who didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. They believed in Jesus but had no concept of how the Holy Spirit operated. And then they're speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, when I was baptized in water as a child, I had no concept that there was a spiritual baptism whatsoever, that there was, um, the Holy Spirit could come upon me uh, and rest upon me, fill me. And it wasn't until adulthood that I recognized my need, because frankly, when I first heard about that, I couldn't be bothered. I was too proud. I didn't feel like I needed him. I'm ashamed to say so, but that's the reality. Seeking water baptism, seeking the baptism with the Holy Spirit, those are good things, but seeking God is key. We must seek the Lord, because in him we find all good things that we need, all that pertains to life and godliness. Now, And forever. So I want to cross reference the baptism of Jesus with a couple other portions just so we can get greater understanding because they each have some really cool things. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, please turn there and we'll read that account. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew goes into John's reluctance to baptize Jesus. So Jesus comes to him, and it's a baptism of repentance. Jesus hasn't sinned. He's the Lamb of God without blemish and spot. Like, What is he doing being baptized? But Jesus, he doesn't deny his supremacy. He just says, suffer it to be now. I am submitting to it, so you submit to baptize me, to fulfill all righteousness. The Spirit of God descending upon Jesus, that was a literal, uh, visible fulfillment of what Isaiah said in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. He says, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The obedience of John to baptize Jesus and the obedience of Jesus to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, like Jesus is identifying with sinners there. He's not a sinner, but he's identifying with them. They've all, all the sinners have been baptized. They've all repented. Now Jesus is being baptized. He's like, I am one of you. Not a sinner, but he is the Savior. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the heavens are open. The Holy Spirit descends. The Father speaks. Don't we desire this today? I mean, wouldn't you want the heavens to be open and for God to just say something and for the Spirit's power to be evident in our lives? This, do you want the Spirit of wisdom understanding of counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord to rest on you. Yeah, yes, please. Yeah, indeed. We can't earn the right to the presence of God, but we can receive him by faith. Now, we all desire God's glory to be revealed to an unbelieving world, right? We want people who don't believe in Christ to recognize that Jesus is the Christ and to come to him. But Jesus has come. He's been revealed. The Spirit has been sent. God is going to show his glory through these broken vessels, through us, so that others can receive him. Isn't that amazing? That God would include us with his plans. And we can be very much like those believers in Ephesus who didn't even know or live life like there was a Holy Spirit. Here are believers, here are Christians who are living life like, we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. We have no idea. What is the Holy Spirit all about? They they didn't know. The comforter, the helper, who guides us into all truth, who teaches us everything that Jesus says, they were ignorant of him. And yet he had come, and he came upon them. It's the righteousness of Christ received by faith that prepares us to receive the Holy Spirit. Now turn to John chapter 1, verse 29. And we'll see how Jesus' baptism identified him as the Messiah. John 1, 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. John and his disciples, it says they baptized numerous people, multitudes of people. I mean, tens of thousands of people were baptized. And he says here, one of the main reasons why he baptized was so the Messiah would be revealed. John didn't know the identity of the Messiah yet. God had said the Messiah will be revealed with a miraculous sign. The Holy Spirit will descend upon him and remain on him. That's how you know he's the son of God. That's the Messiah you're looking for. So he's like baptizing all these people and just waiting for that to happen, whatever it was going to look like. And suddenly you see Jesus coming out of the water. Immediately the heaven's being opened. He's praying. The Holy Spirit descends and rests upon him. And God the Father, he makes it very clear. This is my beloved son in whom I am well-pleased. The Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove, it takes me back to Noah. When the flood had ravaged the earth, God judged the world for its sin, and you have those eight souls saved in the ark. Well, what did they do when the ark came to rest? It says that Noah sent out a dove. He sent out a raven, then he sent out a dove. And the dove flew around and returned, finding no place to rest her foot, it says. Then after seven days, he sends out the dove again and the dove returned with a clipping from an olive tree. So it's like, all right, the waters are abating off the earth. There's, there's trees visible now. Then the third time the dove was released, it did not return. Why? Because it found a place to rest. The world had been cleansed. It had been wiped of the sin, sinful folks that were on the, the land. And you see the Holy Spirit now descending upon Jesus, Upon in a world that's fit for the fire, that's fit for judgment, and he finds that clean, holy place to set his feet on the Messiah, the Son of God. And he rested on him. He abided on him, the one who would bring salvation from judgment. Isn't that awesome? When that sign was fulfilled, then John, he starts leading people to Jesus. He says, that's the Lamb of God, and I know because it was confirmed with that sign. That's why I came baptizing, and it's happened. Jesus is the one. Follow him. John's baptism of repentance, the water baptism of Jesus, the coming upon and resting of the Holy Spirit upon Christ, that was all part of his uh, divine plan, his eternal plan. And the order that God had in preparing the way and then Jesus' coming and The heavens being opened, and it's just awesome to see how God orchestrates the events of our lives. And because, and I think just as thinking about this aspect of of water baptism and baptism with the Holy Spirit, because our eternal salvation rests upon faith alone in Jesus Christ, and not water baptism, and not baptism with the Holy Spirit, there's something in us that will resist them. And there may be different excuses or reasons for this. Like, well, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time, and I'd be a bit embarrassed if I admitted that I hadn't been water, baptized in water. I know Jesus has commanded it, and that we're to identify with him. But is it really a big deal? It's not a salvation issue. And so you just dread that someone would say to you, oh, I would have thought you'd have been baptized by now. And that's like, ugh, that would just hurt. So you just kind of avoid it. You don't, don't deal with it. Or it's just not convenient or something. The Bible tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit by faith. That's Galatians 3.2. That we're to receive the gift of the Father that Peter speaks of in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit given in fullness to those who obey God. That's in Acts 5.32. Now, I don't know if you're born again. I don't know if you've been baptized with water or baptized with the Holy Spirit. But being baptized in water or operating in a spiritual gift does not make you a Christian anymore then visiting a house makes you the owner of the house. You've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, and we're called to submit to him. And as his children, we are to seek him. We're to surrender. And these are touchy subjects. Baptism and water, because they're very personal, right? Baptism in water, baptism of the Holy Spirit. They involve the surrender of our will, and physically and spiritually, And it was not up to John what sign God would use. Like, John didn't get to decide. It would be cool if a bird dropped down. That's how I'd know. He didn't make that decision. God said how it was going to be. And it happened that way, how he identified Christ. And when we're baptized with the Holy Spirit, it's not for us to decide how the Holy Spirit is going to manifest himself. I mean, when Paul, something like scales fall from his eyes, and he goes and he preaches in the synagogue. Other people, like who we read here in, in Acts chapter 19, they prophesied and they spoke with tongues. 1 Corinthians 14.1, it says that we ought to desire spiritual gifts. The greatest is love, that fruit of the Spirit, but may our lack of gifting not spring from our lack of praying or our desire. All right, Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. Being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janna, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsi, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Simei, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Joannes, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shietiel, the son of Nerai, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmodam, the son of Ur, the son of Eosei, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malaya, the son of Menan, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Riu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Many sons, many sons. To quote someone I love, I love me a good genealogy. That person will understand what I mean. Luke says that Jesus began his public ministry around 30 years of age, supposedly the son of Joseph. Now, that was at a time when the Levites would enter into ministry from the ages of 30 to 50. That was their time that they would serve. Um, Interestingly, Joseph, he became second to Pharaoh when he was 30 years of age. David, he was anointed king in his youth, but when he was 30 years old, he became king. Luke takes the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam, confirming that Adam is a real person. Uh, there's people who have read this genealogy that go, oh, I had no idea that, that Jesus actually came from people. That God created Adam from the dust of the ground. He breathed into him a living soul. And some Christians would spiritualize the Genesis account of Adam and Eve as a symbolic. Luke does not. So if you believe that Jesus is a real person, then you must believe that Adam is a real person too. Luke and Matthew both provide genealogies of Jesus, and they do differ slightly. And there's a lot of study that's gone into the differences. The Matthew one has some women in there. Um, this Luke account doesn't. When these genealogies were presented in the first century, they were in no way discredited, um, It's very difficult to reconcile with ancient records that either cannot be found or uh, because of the dispersion of views, Jews, the passage of time. But one thing is for certain, to be the Messiah, you have to be able to prove that you're connected with David, and Jesus does. And it goes all the way back to the beginning. Um, I looked into the right of return today in Israel, that if you are a Jew, you are able to return to gain citizenship in Israel. Did you know that? It's pretty cool, but you ha- now you could be required to uh, have a DNA test to gain admittance. Um, so it was important for the Messiah to be able to prove he was the descendant of David. Jesus can, and I, I have a couple quotes here. Uh, one's from David Guzik in the Enduring Word Commentary. He says, Luke differs in the account of Matthew from David onwards, but they both end their genealogies with Joseph. The best explanation for this seems to be that Luke followed Mary's line, Jesus' actual lineage, and by the way, Jewishness is passed on by the mother, um, while Matthew followed Joseph's line, his legal lineage by adoption. This was Luke's point in his important phrase, being as was supposed the son of Joseph. Luke began with Joseph because he prop- followed proper form and included no women in his genealogy. Now, Matthew, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. He goes back only to Abraham. Luke is writing to largely a Gentile audience, and he goes all the way back to Adam. Um, that He's showing Jesus is the Savior for all people. Matthew Henry, he says this. It's a little bit more flowery, a bit old, more old school. He says, Matthew designed to show that Christ was the son of Abraham, in whom all families of the earth are blessed, that he was heir to the throne of David. But Luke, designing to show that Christ was the seed of the woman, that should break the serpent's head traces his pedigree upward as far as Adam he was both the son of Adam and the son of God that he might be a proper mediator between God and the sons of Adam and might bring the sons of Adam to be through him the sons of God Jesus he's identified by as Messiah through his genealogy place of birth that he was born of a virgin his baptism not to mention his transfiguration his teachings his miracles his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and many more things. I think it's John that said, you know, if all the things Jesus did were written down, would, the world would not be big enough to contain the books that would be written. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and have life through his name. The voice of God, the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove and remaining on him, that was that divine authentication. Jesus said that his followers, they would be identified not by water baptism or spiritual gifting, but by the fruit of the spirit of love. John 13, 34, and 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Isn't it remarkable that the God who created the heavens who has all power and might you know who shakes Sinai with smoke and flames and thunderings and lightnings he's like I want to identify my people by love that they love each other love that's sacrificial love for enemies love for neighbors love for family love for brothers and sisters in Christ who have different convictions and beliefs than you have uh, love for the church love for people in government who have a different affiliation and different policies that are promoting those things that you don't agree with, you love them because we're of God and love is of God. The Bible says that that gracious, selfless, active love that's given through faith in Jesus Christ, that is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. In 1 John 4, 7 and 8... It says that it also says he who does not love does not know God because God is love. Isaiah and the people of Israel at that time were under siege by the Babylonians and they wanted God to reveal himself in power. They wanted God to flex his muscles to show these heathen folks how powerful their God was and how, how he was able to save them and deliver them as he had all those years before in Egypt. And they heard the insults and the rebukes. And they, they wanted God to, to show how powerful he was, like on Mount Sinai. And, and under the threat of destruction, it, it seemed like God's power was distant. Now, if you could please turn to the prophet's cry in Isaiah 64, verse 1. Just hear this longing for God to do something. Have you ever felt that way where you're desperate? You're like, God, you need to do something. You need to show your power. You need to get people's attention. Of course, it's not us that need to, to get you know have our attention because we, we always remember him. We're always loving like we should be, right? <laughs> We're always filled with the Spirit and doing the things that please him, right? We're not worried or full of cares or Burdened with grief that we refuse to hand off? Isaiah 64 verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that all the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the ones who wait for him. You hear that longing. It's like, oh, that you would come down, that you would reveal yourself in power with fire and with, you know, shake the world, God. We didn't expect that from you, but you did that. And we want you to do it again. We might share Isaiah's longing, but Jesus coming as the Savior and the the Holy Spirit being sent has provided a changed condition for us. We're born again. A day is coming when Jesus is going to judge the world in righteousness. But we have the Holy Spirit whom the Father has sent, the down payment for our salvation. Because we've received Christ, we've believed in the gospel, we've repented of our sin, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, and the Holy Spirit then rests upon us. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul quotes Isaiah, but then he, it, he goes beyond it. He, he explains how it fits in our context as followers of Jesus Christ today. 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 9. But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So there's agreement. The eye cannot see, the ear cannot hear, all that God's prepared for us. There's so much that we do not know. Then he says, but God has revealed what was previously unknown, unseen, and unheard to us through his Spirit. When you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. You are a new creation in Him. And when you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, you are empowered to do the will of God, to have a love and, and exercise gifts that were not even in, in your mind before. Jesus has come. He is risen in glory. The Holy Spirit has been sent to help and to guide to direct us into truth. Jesus is interceding on our behalf with the Father. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We've been born again. We've received the Spirit who is from God. Now, what does it say? To what end? Verse 12, that we might know and experience the things freely given to us by God. So then the question is, well, what has God given us? You could turn around and say, well, what hasn't he given us? but he's given us new life. He's given us forgiveness, a new identity as adopted children of God. He has made us co-heirs with Christ, co-heirs. We've received the Holy Spirit who causes our lives to produce the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Like all of those are present in my life because of God. Now you can, there are seasons where there's not much fruit on the tree and there may be seasons where that fruit's not evident because I haven't been trusting the Lord. But if you're in Christ, you're a new creation and the Holy Spirit lives within you. He begins to produce those fruits and you're able, it's like he is working with you to produce those fruits, that fruit of the Spirit. I mean, What grace God has shown us, what generosity that he give us things that we've never desired or even thought of. To love that person, where you're, you know, it's God that's giving me this love for a person that is an unlovable person, that's a difficult person. I want you to consider a few things. Just because God has given you something doesn't mean you've received it. Okay, I left the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the table for almost twenty years because I, I felt strongly I had no need. I had no desire to operate in certain spiritual gifts. I was like, I'd rather speak, you know, 10,000 words in my own tongue than to speak in tongues. I I just, and it was just pride. I had no desire. Um, Just because we've received the forgiveness of God doesn't mean that we don't hold grudges. We can still hold grudges and we hold on to unforgiveness. And we know that we should forgive, but we can't. There's a, Everything that God tells us to do, know that you can't do that. When it says love one another, and you're like, oh yeah, got that one down. It's like, hmm. No, you cannot love other people how God loves you through trying. It's because God is working his love in you. It's an outflow of the crucified life of Christ. Now risen, you've been crucified with him and now he's living his life out through you. And so his love is coming through. It's not your love, it's his love. It's his grace, it's his forgiveness, it's his compassion and kindness. Let's not take credit for what's God's that he's pouring into you and he's pouring out of you by his grace. Just because we've received the love of Jesus doesn't mean we're loving other people how God loves me, how God loves you. And just because God has identified sin in me, it doesn't mean that I've repented of it and made a life change that corresponds with it. Jesus has been identified by God as the Messiah. We are to trust and obey him. And the thought came to me is like, is when when God looks down upon the earth, remember when he saw Job and he says, Satan, what you been up to? Satan's like, I've been walking to and fro throughout the earth. And he says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. The guy is righteous. He's like, well, you protect him. You help him. You put a hedge of protection about it. If you get rid of that, he has no chance. And God's like, okay, you're welcome to, to uh, afflict him, but don't touch him. But that, that eye, the eyes of the Lord going to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking those whose hearts are loyal to him. When God looks down upon us, does he see in you a clean place for the Holy Spirit to rest? that your mind and heart have been cleansed, not because you've just repented of everything. Like, because it's not like my salvation depends upon me understanding everything, nor does my forgiveness depend on me repenting of everything. Like, the blood of Jesus has washed me completely clean, now and forever, by the grace of God. And we walk in that love, and we walk in that awareness of, I am cleansed by the blood of Jesus. I've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. And so by his grace, he sent the Holy Spirit. And I receive that work. I invite that work. I welcome God to come upon me in power that he might use me as we seek to fulfill all righteousness. Not the gift. We can get really distracted by seeking the gift rather than the giver. If you desire God to rend the heavens, if you want him to come down, Let's present ourselves as living sacrifices before him, submitted to him, like John submitted to Jesus in baptizing him. He was so unworthy to do it, but he's like, okay, I trust you. And Jesus submitting to the Father in being baptized and identifying with sinners, in going to the cross and being nailed there, that he would die and his blood would be shed so we could have life. If there is in us that heart and we say, Lord, I confess my pride and my arrogance, and my, my reluctance, and my resistance to even listen to you. Because there's a lot I don't want to hear. i like, not want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. When we, are, when we present ourselves as a living sacrifice, we can find rest in Him. And He will rest upon us, and we'll have a relationship together. And let's love one another. Let's live out our new identity since he has given us love that's not of us. That's beyond our ability to love. Let's make repentance for our sin, our continual practice along with the aim of loving others so that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is glorified. Do we want, I don't think we can want God as much as he desires us, that we would surrender to him, even on our best day when we just feel it. Sometimes we don't feel it. But praise the Lord. Jesus has come. He has sent the Holy Spirit. We have access to the Father by one spirit through Jesus. And he is patient. He is forgiving. Let's draw near to him. He says, if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for sending Jesus and identifying him for the whole world, that he is the Son of God, the Messiah you have sent. And thank you for the new life you've given us and for the the filling of the Holy Spirit, that we can be filled again and again with your presence, to be used by you, to be gifted, um, not for our glory, Lord, but for yours, for the edification of the body of Christ, for the glorification of God. Lord, I pray that you would put in us a great desire, not just a desire in our hearts like a, a fantasy but a desire with intent that we will seek you because we need you and we love you because you first loved us. Lord, may they be in us a heart of humility and submission to your will. Even as Jesus submitted to be baptized, to identify with sinners, to go to the cross, that he might die and rise from the dead and usher us into the kingdom of God by your grace. Lord, I pray that we too, would present ourselves as living sacrifices. That we could say with Paul, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. But it's not me who's living anymore, but it's Christ who lives in me. Lord God, we present ourselves before you. We ask that you would sanctify us and that you would help us to sanctify ourselves unto you. That we would set aside sins, our pride, our prejudice, our, our hurts, our and that we would cast our cares upon you because you care for us. Lord, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for new life. We thank you for hope and eternal life, that you have saved us from eternal death, but you've given us a life to be lived now that's awesome in your presence. Lord, we reach out to you, we cry out to you, we look to you from whom all good things come. In Jesus' name, amen.